Good morning, everybody. It's wonderful to be in church. Uh, just a, two practical things. Just the visitor's tea this morning will be on that side there where the banner is. There's just uh, uh, the baby dedication tea in the normal space as well. I almost said baptism for babies. That would have um, been theologically confusing. Um, if I'm, my information's correct, we have a delegation visiting us this morning from SAKS for Life. Uh, SAKS for Life is one of the partner ministries, long-standing partner ministries here with us at Hatfield. And uh, in this week, I believe starting this time, you, uh, SAKS for Life is celebrating 25 years of ministering to orphans, vulnerable, the vulnerable in society, vulnerable children. They have and have run homes for unwed mothers, and they've planted out into communities all over Pretoria. And so they've invited some of their donors, patrons, families that have adopted children from their ministry from all over the world for this week-long celebration, and, which is, and part of it is that they're joining us this morning. So I wonder if I could invite you to stand, if you, the SAKS for Life delegation, are you here? There we go. You're so welcome, and we'd just like to honor you this morning for the significant change that you've brought, not only in this nation, but in many families' lives across the world, particularly Justice and Ricky van Berg, who were the founders of the ministry and have had a long relationship with Hatfield in the time of this impactful ministry. We'd also like to pray for them as a congregation, just to, that God would continue blessing this, uh, the current leadership and the future, future of SAKS for life as they go today. So can I invite you, let's stretch out our hands, and we bless them. Father, thank you for the lives that have been changed through this ministry, lives that have been changed because people were prepared to be obedient and to follow what you called them to do. And so, Lord, we pray for every child, for every family, for adopted families, for all the current workers and the current leadership and the, all those that through the years have been part of this significant ministry. We pray for your blessing on them. And Lord, we ask for increased fruit, increased fruitfulness, what you, both what you do in the ministry and through the ministry. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing. There was a, a vision in one of the pre-service prayer meetings of the Holy Spirit moving through the sanctuary, through the auditorium. And just as he was moving, and I believe that he has been doing that through the worship time, moving and touching and healing minds and healing hearts, perhaps helping people change uh, with thoughts that have been bothering them and uh, change their minds about certain things. And that is still my prayer, that as we continue through the sharing of the Word, that the Holy Spirit would move and heal and do whatever He wants to do. And as we continue in our series this morning, I want to start by asking the following question. If you had to imagine the best life you could live, what would that look like? My Mine usually starts with a log cabin, somewhere in high, big mountains, preferably with pine forests on the hills and on the mountain slopes, maybe a lake down in the valley. I know this is all very materialistic, but I'm sure some of you also started there. By the way, this log cabin's not too rustic. It needs to have running hot and cold water. I've paid those dues in my life. Um, preferably internet. Um, there were, when there were parts of the city out, out of electricity for a while, uh, one of the 
uh, folks, uh, colleagues here was sharing, and they were saying that they got a generator just to make sure they could have internet. Uh, the rest of us were hoping for hot water. But, um, but I like this idea of the log cabin, and it's not too rustic. And, you know, obviously, sometimes when we start these, what's the best life possible? We start to the externals. Those are my externals. But the reason I want the log cabin is so that it can be peaceful and it can be quiet. What's the best life you could imagine for your inner journeys as well? And then perhaps as we consider this, how would that contrast, I wonder, with the best life that God imagines for you or the best life that God has for you? How does it align? Does it overlap? Because I'm pretty sure God doesn't want me in a log cabin at the moment, largely because I'm here. Um, but how does that align? How do we respond to this invitation from Jesus that says, I've come that you might have life and life in abundance? What does this abundant life look like? And perhaps it's a little bit different from the life that we imagine. And as we get into the message this morning, I need to provide a bit of a context. And so it might feel like a bit of a long introduction, but we'll get to the title and things shortly for the, for the avid note-takers amongst you. But it's important just to perhaps lay two foundational concepts to set some context for the meeting, and I felt this would be perhaps the best way to serve us this morning in dealing with the message that God has for us. When we approach our Christian journeys, one of the ways we, that we sometimes find ourselves or that we can approach it with is what we can call the walk of legalism. And if you guys can, there we go, it's a slide that will come up. When we approach our life through this perspective of through the lens of what is right and what is wrong, now, often when we translate this into our relationship with God and how we relate with God, what often happens there is we start in the place, as you can see on the top of the slide, of achievement. It's about what I must do and mustn't do to please God. We start there. That's our primary point of departure. That we plot, start to this things about what's right and what's wrong. And the more we find ourselves doing right, the more we think that God will provide for us and that there's a provision and we get our authority from our behavior and doing the right things at the right times in the right ways and as we conform to what's going on around us. And then often what happens in this space further is that who we are, when we ask the question who we are, our identity begins to be defined by what we do, by the externals of our walk. And if I've had a good week and I've read my Bible and I've prayed every day and I didn't do bad things. I don't want to give examples. Uh, I didn't do bad things and wrong things and I, and I feel like, okay, I can tick a couple of good boxes Then I kind of feel good about myself and then, you know, I come to church and I'm kind of, my conscience is clearer and so worship is a bit easier. Who I am gets translated and then this becomes the basis in which I find my acceptance. I'm accepted by those around me and I'm accepted by God because I, I do certain things and I don't do other things. This is quite a legalistic way. I, legalistic is about following the rules. My whole base, the place I start, is by following the rules. It's characterized by an overfocus on externals. It's about earning acceptance. It's about earning what God wants you to do. In contrast to this, there's another way that we can embrace our Christian journeys, and we want to call that the walk of grace, the walk of grace. This walk starts in a very different place. It starts with realizing that I am already accepted, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves me and accepts me before I do anything, before I obey any rule, before I follow any precept, 
God loves me. And then my identity, who I am, how I answer that question is informed by the fact that I'm loved first. Before I do one thing, before I say one prayer, before I memorize one Bible verse, I am loved. I am, as we said during the worship, a son or daughter of God. I am a child of God. That gives me my security. That gives me the place that I settle and rest. And then because I'm a son, God provides all that I need for my life, whether it's internally, spiritually, or externally, uh, jobs and salaries and all those kinds of things. But it comes from a place where I'm a son and a daughter of God. The provision comes, and then out of that richness, I achieve things. Now, perhaps another biblical word we can use here for achievement, for those who got a bit stuck, is fruitfulness. Out of this place, I can be fruitful. Because I am a son, I can do things for God. I can engage in those good works that God prepared in advance for me to do because I'm a son. I don't try and do the good works to earn merit. It's because I have merit that I earn it. And these are interesting paradigms. Paul writes about this in Galatians 3, verse 3, where he writes to the Galatians and he says to them, having begun in the spirit, why are you trying to end in the flesh? For purposes of this illustration, having started in a place of grace, you received the spirit when you believed in Jesus, why are you trying to earn it by self-effort and good works? Having begun in the spirit, why do you try and continue in the flesh? And this is sometimes a bit of a wrestle in our journeys to always come back to, I am accepted, I am a son, and therefore I behave according to the values of my family. It doesn't mean that I can do whatever I want because I start in a place of grace. It's grace with responsibility. It's just where I start that is fundamentally different. So the walk of legalism is quite externally focused. It's focused on obeying the rules and earning, but the walk of grace is a life that starts in the heart. It's a life that starts with being accepted in the family. This, these two paradigms affect how we see many things in our Christian journey. It might affect how you see the Bible, how you read the Scriptures. You see, if I approach the Scriptures from a legalistic paradigm, then the Scriptures is a book of rules to be obeyed. And I read my Bible and I'm looking for the rules. And when I look at others through the lens of legalism, I look at, well, are you doing the right stuff? Because if you do the right stuff, you can be accepted and you can be in. When I look at the scriptures through grace, it's how do I find out more about being a son and a daughter of God? How do I find out how God wants me to live and to engage and to express this love that I've experienced correctly and appropriately? Legalism and grace affect how we approach discipleship. Legalism would say it's about discipline and doing the right things. Grace says it's about following and responding to what God wants. And so this is an important concept as we approach our text for this morning, which is coming shortly. I'd also like to give just some context to remind us where we are in our series. We're talking about kingdom living for this term and next term here at Hatfield. Kingdom living up in and out. And you'll remember in the last five weeks, we've had a message about the extraordinary king, that the king we follow is a father who loves us unreservedly and passionately. We also live in an extraordinary kingdom. You remember Pastor Louis shared so eloquently that he sends his greetings, by the way, he's taking some leave, well-deserved leave today, but even this morning he was thinking of us and just send his love and his greetings. 
But Pastor Louis shared around how in Jesus' time, people had a certain paradigm about what the kingdom of God would be. And Jesus refused to conform to those expectations and paradigms and those preconceptions. Because it's his kingdom, not ours. We've spoken about being extraordinary citizens in this kingdom, and we spoke through 1 Corinthians 13, that the citizens in this kingdom of love, the kingdom of the Father, express and live through love. And then you may remember Pastor Dwayne White getting quite excited here one Sunday and then we, which about the suddenlies. And so we've had some prophetic impetus. And then last week, we spoke a little bit about extraordinary living. How do we be this, as 1 Peter 2 speaks about, this peculiar people, the holy priesthood. The scripture wasn't mentioned in the service, but how do we live these lives that are different and peculiar as extraordinary people in the kingdom of God? How do we do these things? And then we want to approach a passage in Mark chapter 8 today, which is quite confrontational. It's quite direct. But it's important that we remember that we're part of this extraordinary kingdom and we have an extraordinary father that we respond to before we start looking at the scripture. And so we're going to be spending some time in the next three or four weeks largely in Mark chapter 8. So one thing, it's not going to go away. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8 for a while. Is that all right? It's in the Bible. It's good. It's all right. Okay. So we know largely consensus is that the Gospel of Mark was written by Mark, but it's probably at the narration of Peter. It's the stories that Peter told about Jesus. And it's largely focused on the actions of what Jesus did. But it was written probably to Christians who were close or close to the city of Rome in the mid-AD 60s, mid to late AD 60s possibly, where the church is starting to experience some pressure. The church is starting to experience some persecution. People are starting to be killed, particularly under Emperor Nero, for confessing the Christian faith. And it becomes quite difficult. And so we do find in this Gospel of Mark, how do we, a highlight for us of how Jesus handles conflict and how often Jesus is in conflict and how do we identify and respond? Because, you see, if Jesus is the Son of God, the Christians in Rome and that Mark is writing to we're asking, if he is the son of God, why is this happening? Why is life difficult? Why is there pressure? Why is there persecution? And part of Mark's, through Peter's answer through Mark, is this idea that, well, this is the journey of the master. Jesus also experienced conflict. Jesus also experienced persecution. Jesus also had difficulties, difficulties that he had to attend to. And so we come to Mark chapter 8, and we find a bit of a pivot in the gospel. The first half of the gospel is typical to Mark. There's miracles happening and people are being healed and there's deliverance going on. But from around verse 27, Jesus starts engaging quite intentionally and for the rest of the gospel, he starts his journey towards Jerusalem where he knows that he's going to be crucified. And he starts in around verse, as I mentioned, verse 27, and he says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? He's starting to engage with them around their messianic expectations, what they expected of Jesus and what they expected him to do. And the disciples gave him various answers. And he confronts them, well, who do you say I am? And Peter does this famous confession, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. It's like this high point. And Jesus kind of goes, yes, someone's got it. And then it says in verse 31 in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus began to teach them and later on it says, and speak plainly to them that he'd have to go and suffer, that he'd have to be crucified to accomplish God's purposes. 
to bring God's kingdom, the Father's kingdom, this extraordinary kingdom that we experience today, he would have to suffer. He would have to go to the cross. He'd have to pay the price for sin. And he starts teaching them this quite plainly, Mark says. And Peter, being Peter, draws Jesus aside. This, I just imagine this sometimes. This must have been a little bit of a moment. Jesus is speaking. Peter goes, Jesus, just, you know, can, you, can you come here? I just want to have a word. And he says to Jesus, this is wrong. What you're saying is wrong. I kind of, I rebuke it, Jesus. Okay. And Jesus <laughs> looks at Peter. Imagine you're Peter. And he looks at him and goes, get behind me, Satan. Ugh. Okay. How would you like Jesus to look you in the eye and go, get me? Okay. So, so I'm sure Peter's a little shocked. And then Jesus says to him, because you have on your mind the things of men and not the things of God. In other words, Peter, God's ways are different from man's ways. What God wants me to do here and now is different from what you're expecting. And Jesus has this encounter with his disciples, you do say, and he's teaching them plainly that he must suffer, has this confrontation with Peter, and then we get to our text for this morning, Mark chapter 8, verse 34 to 38. He's had this private encounter, and you'll see now he speaks more into this place of what does it mean to be identified with Jesus? What does it mean to be associated with him? Let's read together in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. I'm reading from the NIV translation. Jesus, then he called the crowd uh, to him along with the disciples, and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny him themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, like that log cabin in the mountains, yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, in other words, that generation and ours too is not a good reference point for what to be proud of and ashamed of. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now this is quite a challenging piece of scripture, and this is the title of the message this morning, Deny Yourself. just want you to note this is something Jesus said, not Neil. I'm just quoting directly, verbatim if you want. Jesus said, deny yourself. If you want to be associated with him, it starts with deny yourself. Now you hear these words, and if you hear them through the legalistic ears, you might get quite excited because it's about all the things you need to stop doing. But I want to propose that we should actually hear them through the ears of grace, that we are already loved and accepted by God. We are his sons and daughters, and yet he still says to us, deny yourself. Deny yourself. So it's a couple of things quickly, and then we'll talk a little bit about this wonderfully exciting topic of denying yourself. I have thanked Pastor Louis profusely for assigning this one to me. <clears throat> How many of you know if you did a business seminar entitled Deny Yourself, you're going to get poor quickly? Okay. So I understand this is a, quite a, <laughs> a thing to say. Let's first notice Jesus' audience here. It says in verse 34 that he called the crowd to him along with the disciples. 
So this is a message that Jesus intended all his followers to hear. This is not the message for the gifted class. This is not the message for those who are serious about God. This is a message for all the sons and daughters of God. This is not the message for those who like challenge. This is the message for everyone. Jesus says he called the crowd and the disciples to him. So this is something he wants everyone to understand is an important part of following him. We notice also then that Jesus says, whoever wants to, if we look at just a phrase a bit further on in these sentences, whoever wants to, there's an invitation. Whoever, doesn't matter, race, religion, creed, background, how big a sinner you were or weren't, whoever wants to. There's invitation and desire. Do you want to follow him? And if you do, Jesus is being quiet up front. This isn't a good soft sell. Jesus is being quiet up front. If you want to, anyone can come, but you must desire to. You must desire to follow him. Whoever wants to follow me, Jesus says. Not follow religion, not follow a creed, follow the person of Jesus Christ. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself. This is about identifying with Jesus, not about proving that you're worthy. Sons and daughters of God deny themselves. This is, to quote a title of a Watchman Nee book, the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life is that Jesus wants us to deny ourselves. Now, you might say there's not that much wrong with me. What do I have to deny? It's all good here. I think Jesus has some things to say to us in this regard. So what does it mean to deny yourself? So one of the good things you always do when you preach is you do a word study on the word deny, and guess what it means? Deny. Okay. Other than it's a very strong form of the word. Okay. So there's a little bit we can learn from the, 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 the form of the word here. Now, to be honest, how many of you, if you, you're in church, so you have to be honest, but if you feel to, when you hear this word, for how many of you does the word have a negative connotation? Like you hear the word deny and you go, oh. anybody? Okay, there's, there's a few, and the rest are not honest in church. No, okay. <laughs> and our challenge with this word is that we do have this negative connotation with it. We see that it's negative, but I don't think that's actually what Jesus is intending us to experience when we hear these, this phrase, deny yourself. It's a strong word. It's a very emphatic word. So if you think of this in terms of um, uh, dieting or food, this is not the word that says reduce your portion size. Okay? This is the word that says nothing at all. This is not the word that says control your, uh, the helpings you eat. This is the word that says no helpings of yourself allowed at all. It's a strong word. But it's also a positive word. When we hear from some other religions, Eastern religions, particularly a religion like um, Buddhism, that's very focused on self-denial. It's part of the, the tenets of, the, of, the, of that religion. But the idea there is this negative connotation that we have with the word. It is the word that you eliminate things from your life. You just cut them out in order that you eventually end up eliminating yourself. I don't quite know how they get it right, because their goal in life is to become nothing, to be absorbed into the nothingness. Okay? 
But in that framework of the religion, it is about eliminating, just taking out, cutting out, cutting out, cutting out. I don't think that's the picture of this word that's in the Bible. I think the picture of this word is more this. We say no in order to say yes. We say no in order to say yes. There's a bit of a progression in this verse. Jesus says you deny yourself, you say no to yourself. So, and then what must you do? Pick up your cross, which is even more fun, and we'll talk about that next week, and follow me. We say no in order to say yes to something. We say no to ourselves so that we can pick up our cross. We say no to ourselves so that we can follow Christ. We say no in order to say yes. And this, by the way, is a place of freedom. When I can say no so that I can say yes to other things, it gives me a freedom, not a restriction in my life. It's an embrace and not a just an elimination. As, as the team was talking about, it's one of the examples that was used, uh, I know Pastor Louis used it in certain contexts, but I think it came out of one of the, from one of the younger people as we were brainstorming this series. They said it's a bit like a phone storage system. I'm trying to expound a little bit on this word deny. Is that okay? So depending on the type of phone you have, if it's associated with fruit, uh, one of the frustrations, I like it, I have one, um, <laughs> is that there's no external memory. So in other words, when the phone gets full, then it's full. And I know this happens with other brands of phones as well. It's not just particular to, to this one. But what happens, my wife's actually battling with this now because she loves taking photos, and so she always battles with space. Okay? And so if she wants to add something to the phone, like there's a new app that she wants to download or something, then what does she have to do? She has to delete things, and it's always good to spring clean your phone. It's a, it's a whole new digital spring cleaning thing that's being invented now. But to add something, you have to delete something, and then we can engage with what we want. Now, that is not the concept here. Sorry, it's a nice idea, but the concept here isn't that you take some things out of your life to make space for Jesus. That's not the concept. The word denier is it's you wipe everything off and you reinstall, in fact, a whole new operating system. That's why one of the illustrations in Scripture is you must be born again. Because it's like your old life has to be, it was wrong. It was full of unnecessary things. It needs to be wiped out, reformatted, and put into a new system. And so when we deny ourselves, it's not about making more space for Jesus. It's about radically reorientating our lives towards him. If we want to live the best life possible, we have to deny ourselves. We have to give up, perhaps, on our own dreams and ambitions to pursue His. One of the commentators that writes on this passage says the word deny is a bit like this. It's about a shift in the center of gravity in our lives from a primary concern of ourselves to a reckless abandon to the will of God. Now, that's quite something, a, prior, a move in the gravity of our lives. Gravity pulls things towards it. It's a shift in the gravity of our lives. Is the gravity in your life pulling things towards yourself? Or is, this, is there this reckless abandon to God's purposes? That's what it means to deny ourselves. It's a bit, and I understand there's some semantics, just the use of words here. But it's the subtle difference between inviting Jesus into your life and giving your life to him. 
And I know we use the language where we, we call people to Christ and we say, invite Jesus into your heart. It's, it's helpful language. It can work. But what we actually mean is give your life to Jesus. Give up your old life and embrace a new one. So in Christian denial, when we read about Jesus saying deny yourself, it means saying no in order to say yes. If you want to overcome sin, we don't just say no to sin. We say yes to a better relationship with Jesus. We don't just say no to sin. We say yes to doing things right, righteousness. We don't just say no to sin. We say yes to holiness. If you want to overcome sin, free tip, focus on the yes and not on the, on the no. Focus on getting closer to God, knowing Jesus better, living as a son and a daughter, orientating your life of what is the appropriate way to live in response to this generous love I've received. Focus on the yes and not on the no. Because why must we do this? Why should we deny ourselves? Because we have an extraordinary king. We have a father who loves us. And we live in an extraordinary kingdom. And if we try and hold on to our lives, Jesus says later in this passage, it's a paradox. The tighter you hold on to your best life, the quicker it will slip through your fingers. But when you can take your life and say, Jesus, I give you my life, that's when you really start living. That's when you really start stepping into, I've come that you might have life and have it in abundance. Two verses in this passage that I just want to highlight and then we'll, we'll trust the Lord to apply this message a little bit for us. Verse 36 and 37, Jesus asks these very direct and interesting questions. He says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, to gain this whole life you've dreamed of, this cabin in the woods? What good is that to gain that and forfeit your Soul. Now, soul here means more than just mind, will, and emotions. It means your whole being, to forfeit your life. What good is it to gain this whole life, to, to live the life where you have aimed at a certain thing, yet forfeit your soul? Or what can anyone give, verse 37, what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And so often in the modern life, in contemporary society, the message we get is not about deny yourself. The message we get from media and many places around us, is fulfill yourself, gratify yourself, become everything you want to be. You can have your dreams now, just finance it. All these things are bombarded with, and Jesus comes into this contemporary pressure, just like the church in those days was experiencing pressure. He comes into the same pressure we're experiencing to conform and to get and to plan and uh, more things and excess of materialism. And he comes and he says, what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What is the value of your soul? What are you giving up to satisfy your soul? You see, there is one who really knows the value of a soul. He's the one who went to the cross and died to pay the price for your soul. So when he says, Deny yourself. Don't give up. Don't give up uh, the riches of the kingdom to satisfy your soul. When he says what value is a man's soul, he really knows. We don't actually know. We think we know. So it's about saying yes to the best life that God can imagine for us. And here's the thing. When I was in high school, 
I had a picture of what my life would look like. When I was in my early 20s, I had a picture of what my life would look like. The life I live now doesn't look like that life at all. How many of your lives correspond to what you thought 20 years ago if you're old enough? Okay. But I'll say this, by following Jesus, my life is better than I could ever have imagined. It's better than I could ever dream. I don't need the log cabin in the woods. Well, it'd be nice, but I don't need it because the life I'm living is for him. Where I get my joy, where I get my fulfillment is by being a father pleaser, where I live to please my father. So I gladly say no to say yes. What are we saying yes to? We're saying yes to him. We're saying yes to the Father who loves us and actually knows what's really better for us. We're saying yes to him. We're saying yes to his purposes instead of our own. We're saying yes to that there's a better way to live our life than I could have planned. I don't know what your answer was to I said when I asked you, what's the best life that you can imagine? I'm not sure what your answer was, but I will say this. If you follow Jesus, if you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him, you will live a richer life. Maybe you won't have all the cars and the houses and the, the materialistic things, although I believe God will provide for us in those areas too. Maybe you won't have the job you always dreamed of, but you will have a better life because it's his life and not your life. It's his plans and not yours. And so as I was preparing and praying, this morning, I felt God being quite specific in how he wanted to apply this word. Today is not about denying the externals. This is not about saying, okay, Jesus, I'm not going to buy the second car or the second home. Or Jesus, I'm going to adjust my budget so that I can be more generous. Those things are good and important. And if Jesus is speaking to you about those things, then you should <laughs> definitely obey him. But I believe for us now here this morning, the question is about Today it starts in our hearts. In our hearts are we prepared to say, I deny myself because I want to live for him. I want to embrace his things. Being part of his family and being a father pleaser is much more important than my personal goals and ambitions. I want the center of gravity in my life, the things that I pull people towards and things toward the thing that I pull people and, and, and stuff towards in my life. I want it to be him and not me. I want the gravity in my life to be a reckless abandon to the will of God. How do we do this? It's by responding to what God has already done. When, God, when Jesus comes to you and he says, deny yourself, and you go, well, Lord, is there anything I must deny? One of the ways to do this is to say, well, God, what are you already doing in my life? Is there an area of your life that God is blessing? A couple of months ago, I felt this drawing in my spirit to pray more to just engage with God more in prayer. I haven't done a great job if I look back at it objectively. I, I've tried. But I felt this drawing. And so when I respond to that, there's a grace for me to pray more, to, bless, to, to learn more, to commune more with God. But if I'm going to pray more, do you understand, I have to start saying no to certain things in order to say yes to prayer. That's the positive denial. That's how we say no. We say no to things because God is drawing us to a bigger yes. It's about responding to what God has already done. It's not about the externals this morning. It's about 
the heart. It's about whose glory. It's interesting at the end of this passage, Jesus says that he will be coming in the Father's glory. Whose glory do we live for? Do we want our own glory to be the end reflection of our life? Or do we want his glory? And so this morning, I believe God wants us as a community, and obviously as individuals, to abandon ourselves again. Because this is a progressive journey in our lives often. You think you've, you've done it, and you walk a bit, and then you realize there's just more, isn't it? Okay, I'm the only one. Nice. Confess my sins in public. Um, God wants us to abandon ourselves to him. So can I invite you to stand, and I'd like to pray just a prayer for us this morning. It's going to be a prayer of surrender. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, that you are an an extraordinary king, that you love us more than we can think, imagine, more than we could ever dream of. And thank you, too, then, that we understand that your plans for our lives are way better than our plans. And so when we hear these words, Lord, through your providence, through your directing of your spirit, when we hear these words this morning, deny yourself. I pray for, Lord, for each one listening, hearing this, each person in the room, that you will help us to say no in order to say yes. Earlier in the service, Sean felt as he led the worship that you were speaking to people, Lord. I pray you help those people to say no in order to say yes to what you're already doing in their lives, to what you have already initiated. And so, Lord, we want to take this moment again to say it's about you and not about us. Lord, I don't even want to pray that we want you and what you want. We want to pray and say we want you. And when we found you more, then we'll engage in the business of what you want for us too as a community. So won't you take a few seconds And if there's something that you need to abandon yourself on God about, abandon yourself to God, a reckless abandon to the purposes of God, won't you just speak those words to the Lord? If there's nothing there and the Lord's not drawing you or pressing you or saying anything to you, won't you just stay focused on Him in this time? So, Lord, again, I give myself more fully to you. God, we want what you want, but we want you first. Lord, we know that your plans for our lives, your plans for this church, your plans for our city, your plans for our nation and all the nations represented in this room are better than anything we could have imagined. And that's what we want to do, Lord. That's what we want to say no for so we can say yes to your plans and to your purposes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.